Well, amen and amen. Let me just say, first of all, that uh, it's a delight to be here at South Church. My connection is with, uh, historically, is with uh, the Van Lowe's and the Taloyans, but uh, made a good deal of many friends here. So thank you so much. We have been going through a uh, series. Uh, we've been following the Passion Week. You know, in, in Acts chapter 1, Luke says that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion. And uh, that translation, that word that's used there in Acts 1, uh, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. And so, in the English-speaking world, we have uh, taken to referring to the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as his passion, appro appropriately enough. And uh, it's interesting that each one of the four Gospels, although he is, each one is deliberately selective in, in the telling of the, the story of Jesus, each one gives about 40% of his space to the last week of Jesus' life. And I like to say that, by the way, it is an eight-day week. It goes from Sunday to Sunday. And uh, if it were not an eight-day week, if it were a seven-day week, we wouldn't be here this morning, I like to say. But but uh, and, and it is the Easter season, and so it's going to be our focus appropriately enough in, in weeks to come, especially here at South Church. So we have spent a couple of days just making our way through the detailed accounts. I mentioned that there are about two-fifths of each one of the four Gospels is given to the last week of Jesus' life, and, and that would suggest a couple of things. First of all, that we can reconstruct that week with a measure of detail that we can't bring to other parts of Jesus' life. But secondly, God really wants us to know the events of this week. And so we, had, uh, we have worked through a set of notes. And by the way, I can make those notes easily available to you. But uh, we have come to, Sunday, uh, to Friday morning. And uh, uh, if, if I'm going to walk through this, if we can advance that slide one time. The, uh, I don't, uh, yeah. This is the outline we have used, and uh, I'm not going to walk you through it. I'll just review it very quickly. Uh, Sunday is a day of messianic presentation, and that is the triumphal entry, and that is the moment of, of, of official, deliberate presentation by Jesus of himself to that generation as the Messiah. We sing the, the chorus, this is the day which the Lord has made. Well, that actually comes out of Psalm 118, 24, and it's not talking about, frankly, just any day. It's talking about, I like to say it's talking about March 29, 33 AD. That's the day that the Lord has made, because what's at stake is that that, is, that Psalm, Psalm 118, was written uh, to teach Israel how they ought to receive their Messiah when he appears, and he appeared most officially there on, uh, at the triumphal entry. So uh, that was Jesus offering himself, and that's why Jesus said to his, his detractors when they, they tried to make the, uh, the, the, the pilgrims quit singing, uh, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord, and so on, Jesus said the very stones would cry out because this is the day which only God could make. That is the day uh, when that promised deliverer of Genesis 3 finally appeared. So that was Messianic uh, presentation. And then uh, secondly, on Monday and Tuesday, I asked the question given Sunday, why Friday? And I think the answer is Monday and Tuesday because uh, on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus cleansed and seized the temple and made the truth concerning himself absolutely clear and drove the, that, that city to a decision. On Sunday, they were happy to throw down their garments and, and, and they were anxious for one who could deliver them from Rome. But on Monday and Tuesday, Jesus 
made it clear that, that uh, I like to say it this way, that on Sunday, the triumphal entry, Jesus is offering himself as the long-promised Savior, and he has every, it's, it's a legitimate offer. That's the message of Sunday. On Monday and Tuesday, the message he leaves us is this. You don't take Jesus on your terms. You take him on his terms. And when Jesus drives the city to a, that decision, uh, well, on Friday morning, they're going to cast the verdict. But, uh, and then uh, Wednesday's a silent day, Thursday a day of preparation, first of all, uh, in the upper room where Jesus prepares his disciples for what's about to come, and then Jesus makes his way to Gethsemane and spends that season of, of gut-wrenching prayer. And one of the points that I tried to make this weekend is that uh, it's so desperately important to let the Bible say what it's trying to say about the reality of Jesus' humanity. He took upon himself genuine, unfallen humanity. He was not Clark Kent. He wasn't God just pretending to be man. I always use Clark Kent, you know, there never was a Superman. That was, that was, that never, I'm sorry, there never was a Clark Kent. That was just Superman pretending. And I think sometimes we read the stories as if Jesus was just God pretending to be man. No, he took upon himself genuine humanity. Bottomless mystery in that, but bless this. That's exactly what the scriptures say. But so the point is that Jesus spends that time, well, I was going to say that during his time on, uh, on earth, Jesus had no more spiritual resources than you and I, and he depended upon those spiritual resources. And one of the most important was prayer. So Thursday night, he spends that time in prayer. He emerges from the garden. He's arrested. You have a series of trials. And uh, on Friday morning, I, I, uh, and, and I refer to it as uh, Friday, a day of messianic perfection in the sense that Jesus is going to, he's going to, well, he's going to accomplish the work. All right, now what I'd like to do, and I have notes before me, and, 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 uh, uh, but I'm just going to walk you through quickly the events. And, and let me say that uh, as, I, as I was invited to come, and I appreciate it so much, and I, I, I you know, tried to plan it out, and, and I think appropriately enough, I determined that this morning we would be focusing on the cross itself. But that's always a foreboding and intimidating prospect for me because uh, this, this marvelous, we, we come to that narrative which is at once the most bottomlessly awful and the most infinitely blessed story in all of human history. And uh, it, 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 it deserves a much better telling than I can give it. But I, I think clearly God wants us to understand this, so rather quickly I'm going to walk through the events of the crucifixion itself. And so we go to the next slide, we come to the crucifixion, there were a set of trials or hearings in the morning, and finally at 6 o'clock in the morning, John 19, 14, Jesus was turned over to be crucified, and there was some preparation, and meanwhile, the soldiers abused him and made sport of him and, 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 and so on, but now... Uh, he is handed the cross, actually just the, the horizontal piece, and uh, the vertical pieces were probably almost certainly secure. In the, in, there in, in, in Jerusalem, as in every Roman city of any size, there was a place of crucifixion, and it was, it was dedicated to that. And there were stakes in the ground, but Jesus was caused to carry the cross piece, and he staggered, and, and a man is, is uh, uh, recruited, Simon of Cyrene, of course, and Jesus is brought to the cross, and about nine o'clock in the morning, according to Mark, it was the 
it was the third hour, and that's Jewish reckoning, and it starts at sunup. So Mark 15 tells us that about 9 o'clock in the morning, Jesus was lifted up uh, onto the cross. He's going to hang there for six hours. Now, we spent much time... Uh, I spent a little time yesterday talking about the, the reality that as the cross drew near, it, it absolutely horrified our Savior. And, but, but I want to, I, and I should say as the cross experienced, because I don't want to suggest that it was the physical suffering. It was awful. And I could spend a good deal of time describing it and so on. We understand it well. But, and, 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 but, but the fact is that what terrified Jesus was the prospect of being made sin for you and me. And so now Jesus is, in fact, raised up on that cross. And, and by the way, the Bible is explicit that all along the way, as he carried his cross, people were reviling him, insulting him as he was raised up on the cross. Even the leaders, Matthew says in Matthew 27, he said, even the leaders cried out, made fun. He said he was the son of God, let him come down and so on. And there's all this reviling. Now, balance that out because Luke tells us that there were following Jesus a great number of people, including women, who were, were mourning and, and, and so. But by the same token, what I want you to see is that Jesus was the object of insult and calumny and derision all along the way. And now he's raised up on the cross. And he's going to speak seven times. I'm going to kind of reduce it to six in a minute, but, but uh, he's going to speak seven times. And uh, I think the best way to trace the narrative is to follow those times where he speaks. And that is to understand what's going on and the heart of our Savior. So he's going to speak uh, three times, or for the first three hours, you know this, the sky is going to remain light. It's, it, 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 it's it, as, as normal. So if you go to the next slide, uh, Jesus is mocked, and, and, and I give you the pages on the notes. But go one more, if you would. So the first three hours, Jesus speaks three times. Now more, one more. I don't know if this is very helpful to you, but I got it up there for heaven's sake, so there it is. First of all, now, listen, here are, honest to goodness, let's think about this. To begin with, Jesus says, and this is... is uh, May, uh, this is actually Luke 22 and verse 34. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And by the way, the Greek is quite explicit that he kept saying this. So it seems that as they actually, the cross, the piece was laid down and, and he, his, his wrists were nailed to the cross. And then as he was hoisted up and his, his ankles were nailed to the cross. Uh, listen, I say his ankles, the when a person is, is, as soon as a person is hanged on the cross, his whole rib cage settles in on his breathing apparatus, and you can't breathe without hoisting yourself up. And so, and the Romans were, because the Romans wanted this to be lingering. They wanted the man to remain on the cross for, usually it was two to three days. But, uh, but so they, they included apparati by which they could hoist themselves up. That's why if you wanted to hasten the death, you would break his legs. You couldn't sleep on the cross. You couldn't comatose uh, because you, you, you had to raise yourself up for every breath. Well, at any rate, all through that process, evidently, we don't know how many times, but as he was being nailed, he kept saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I'd love to stop on that. I'm going to 
leave it. It's a fascinating, uh, uh, well, I'll just say this, that there is a profound sense in which at least the leadership did know what they were doing. And I get that primarily from Jesus' parable, which he told last Tuesday, uh, about the wicked husbandman. And you remember a man had a vineyard and he lent it out to some uh, husbandmen and when time came to, to gather the fruit, they remember that he sent messengers and they beat them and killed them. And then at the last, he sent his son, his, own, his only son, his well-beloved son, the synoptics say. But, but you, remember, you remember this parable that when the wicked husbandmen saw the son, what did they say? They didn't say, this man claims to be the son, but we don't believe him. They said, this is the heir. Let us kill him and claim the vineyard for ourselves. And you compare that to Caiaphas just a couple of weeks earlier in John chapter 11, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and, uh, and, and, and the Sanhedrin had said, we got to be rid of this man or the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. This man does many signs, but we got to be rid of him. So on the one hand, I think it's fair to say that the Jewish leadership, and, and I, I want to say too, as long as I got into it, whatever disbelief and confusion there was, and there was, uh, it was not by reason, of the fact, uh, by reason of the fact that Jesus was insufficiently made the case for himself. Jesus had demonstrated beyond any possible doubt but that he was everything he claimed to be. But by reason of fallenness, by re for whatever reason, but spirit, Jesus' spirit is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then secondly, you have a remarkable word of compassion for the, the, the thief. And uh, you know this story, I'm going to be quick, but there are two thieves, and they are, they are they're, again, they're hurling insults at Jesus and so on. But one of them... And we're going to happily acknowledge that the spirit is at work in, the, in, in this man. But one of them comes to his spiritual senses. And, and he turns to Jesus. He gets after the other thief. And he says, you deserve this. We deserve this. He doesn't deserve that. This, and, and, and he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, real quickly, stay with me. That is a really insightful Old Testament prayer. Because you see, in the Old Testament, believers, those who gave their allegiance to Yahweh, were absolutely confident of resurrection. They knew that when their body was buried, it was going to stay there until they were resurrected onto a kingdom and Messiah would rule. They knew that. Job knew that. I mean, it's, it's all over the Old Testament. They understood. Here's what they didn't understand. Here's what they, no, back up. Here's what had not been revealed to them. And that is what the grave was like. You know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You can't get that in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, what's the Old Testament word for the grave? Sheol. Sheol. Who goes to Sheol? Everybody. Dogs go to Sheol. Lost go to Sheol. Sheol is just as undefined. That's all they knew. They, they didn't have any revelation as to what we call today the intermediate state between, resurrection, between death and resurrection. And so the thief turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Amen and amen. But you see, Jesus says, no, no, I can do better than that. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. I think that man is the first man to die with clear, revealed confidence 
that he was going immediately to be in a place of paradise. And then, and, 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 and while the sun is still shining, Jesus speaks again. And this is so, and, 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 and this relates to what uh, Naomi and I were talking about. But as I said to you then, that Jesus knows what it is to raise a family. And, 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 and folks, I please understand that this is not some play act that Jesus is going through. He, reversed, he rehearsed his, you know, he memorized his lines in an attorney passed or something. This is real. He is living out this drama. And I think John says, this is only in John, that Jesus saw his mother and some other women at the foot of the cross. Now let me tell you something. The Romans framed crucifixion very carefully. It was known, it had been used by various cultures, but they, they refined it as, it, it, crucifixion was not so much about executing the seditionist. It was, entire, it was almost entirely for sedition, that is rebellion, somebody who tried to raise his hand against Rome. And, and crucifixion was not nearly so much about executing the seditionist as it was putting down the sedition. And so it had to be, it was very, there were protocols. And one of those protocols was that it had to be, it had to be public. So it was always at a gate where you had to pass through. And, and the, the victim, uh, there was a bit of a mound. Now, sometimes we think of a hill, you know, it, it, it's not, it, the Romans want people to see this. But for that reason, it had to be, the, the, the cross had to be high enough that people in the crowded gateway could look over the crowd and see that poor wretch suffering for what he had, for raising his hand against Rome. Time out. Jesus was exonerated of sedition. So he, he was not a seditionist. He was, he was uh, we talked about this yesterday, he was so carefully and deliberately uh, proven and, and announced as, as, as innocent. But by the same token, he did die the death that Rome intended for a seditionist. And that's very, very important, but I won't get into it. But it's a, it's a fine point. But, but my point is this, that, that uh, uh, the, the cross was raised up, and Jesus looks down. Now, let me just tell you, and I sometimes do this, but I, what I'm about to say is, is, is a bit conjectural, but I think it makes a great deal of sense. The, the Romans, as I say, insisted that, that, that the cross be unspeakably cruel. Uh, it, it, the suffering was awful. And, and part of the design was that the cross would be high enough that people could see, but low enough that dogs could nibble. And the other gruesome reality was that as the victim hung there, the birds would begin to peck at his eyes and so on. And, and we're told, not in the scriptures, but there's a remembrance that in many cases, the Roman soldiers assigned to that particular uh, victim would kind of look the other way if somebody, just somebody from the crowd or some person from the family wanted to go and fetch just a long swish and stand near the cross and, and chase those dogs and those birds away. Now, what we have explicit in the scriptures is that Jesus, hanging on the cross, looked down and he saw his mother. And I think it's very significant 
that he didn't see his own brothers. They weren't there. And for that reason, because Jesus, and I'm telling you, I mentioned Jesus stepped into the role of, of a provider for his mother and caring for his children when Joseph died. And we know him. Listen, Jesus encounters his physical, or we encounter Jesus' physical family a number of times in the, in, in the narrative. And after Luke chapter 2, Joseph never shows up. And the fact that here on the cross, Jesus turns his mother over to John is clear indication that Joseph was dead. Now, my point is this. I think as Jesus looked down, his heart was so heavy because his brothers weren't there at least to support his mother. And he knows that there are difficult spiritual times ahead. And even on the cross, his, his, the, his heart as a dutiful, loving son is, is heavy for his, his mother. And so he sees John in the crowd and he calls John out. And he says, you know the story, behold your mother, it says to Mary, and he says, woman. Now, that seems a little cold, but what's he being careful not to say? See, he doesn't call her mother because he's not going to be there to care for her like he has. Woman, behold your son. And, 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 and John steps up to take care of Mary. Now, the point to be made, and this is what we kind of talked about, but as I say, uh, are there, are there loved ones in your family? Are there loved ones in your life who are lost and, 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 and you, your heart is heavy for them? See, I will argue that Jesus knows that exactly. Now, we know the end of the story. We know that by reason of Jesus' testimony, he's going to encounter his brother James, 1 Corinthians 15. His other brothers are going to become <coughs> believers, and James himself is, of course, primary player in the... Uh, early days of the, of the church in Jerusalem. But what I'm saying to you is that, 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 well, very, very simply, Jesus' heart was broken for his brothers, and it was tender to his mother. And so he cares for his mother. All right, now quickly. And I want you to get in the moment just a little bit. Because what happens now is the sky grows dark. Now, folks, this is supernatural. It's remembered all over the world, by the way. There are historical records of this. It's not dark like in the Exodus. It's not in the, in the, in the plagues in Exodus. It's not God wants us to see what's going on. But there is a supernatural curtain of grayness. The sun diminishes its light. Now, do you think that would get your attention? All of a sudden, imagine it. Jesus is hanging there. There's all this reviling, these curses. All of a sudden, the sky drops. You know, it's staggering to me the way that God contrived to put his fingerprint on this scene, to make the case, this is of God. And I think he calls, he, he, he pulls that, like I say, that curtain of grayness across the world to make the point that what's happening here is the most awful infinitely wrong miscarriage of justice, the most awful perversion of all that is right as the, as the absolutely perfect sinless son of God hangs there and suffers the, 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 the anger of God. But God wants us to see it. And so now the, gray, the, the sky grows dark. And it's interesting that if you follow the narrative carefully, after this, there are no insults. 
everybody is appropriately and necessarily sobered. And they begin to wonder what's going on. But for three hours, Jesus hangs there in, in that, in that, in that, in that semi-darkness. Now, let me tell you something. Well, let me, let me proceed. So for three hours, Jesus says nothing. At the end of those three hours, Jesus speaks four times. I'm going to have to really hurry here, but Jesus is going to speak four times. In the first place, while it is still dark, Jesus cries out, and this is clearly, uh, he, is, he, is, he is referencing Psalm 22 in verse 1, but he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now listen, I think that is the most important and instructive uh, uh, insight into exactly what's going on on the cross. And I don't pretend that we can, we can define it in, in, in full exactness, but, but what's going on at the cross, you know, let me say it this way. When you and I think of death, we think immediately of physical death, all right? And that's a serious thing, and, you know, I'm the old guy in the room, so, you know, it's, it's getting close, but, but I would argue that physical death is a, an afterthought with God. How hard is it for God to fix physical death. Lazarus, come out here. It's over. On the other hand, in the Bible, death, all right, the first time we encounter death in the Bible is Genesis 3. And God says to Adam, don't eat of that tree. In the day you eat of it, you will die. So he eats of it. And 938 years later, he dies, right? No, no. The moment he ate it, he died because death is separation. It's alienation. That's definitional. And so Adam, who had known what it was, imagine this. As a matter of fact, happily imagine it because it is your destiny. But Adam had known what it was to walk in the cool of the day. God created Adam. He created you and me in such a way that we can never know any real soul satisfaction apart from this happy fellowship with God. And Adam had known that. And now he finds himself alienated. He's angry with God. He's fleeing from God. That is spiritual death. It is alienation from God. Now, here's the point. You and I believe in a Trinitarian God, but I don't think we, any one of us can understand it. I mean, it's, it, it, it's more than we can really comprehend. If you're thinking of water, ice, and steam, knock it off, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, so, so the point is that, 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 but what it teaches us, and oh, I love the doctrine of the Trinity, because what it teaches us, at least in my mind, is almost about, is that God, it is, it is, it, God exists in relationship. It is native to him to enjoy and nurture relationship in the persons of the Trinity. And, 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 and that, by the way, you're made in the image of God. And there is nothing more precious in life than relationship. You think about, I don't spend too much time with this, but you think about that which has or, 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 or might be more, most distressing to your soul that would drive you to a place where you really despaired of, of living. It wasn't interesting to you anymore. And I, 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 I'll tell you, it won't be money. It won't be health. It'll be relationship. That's how God, so you have this, what we know about the Trinity is that there are these three persons 
as mysterious as it is, it re- it's what exactly what God reveals. There are three persons, and they, they enjoy a, 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 an intimacy, a relationship which is perfect, which is eternal. And so whatever that blessed, infinitely delightful relationship is between fa- father and son, as Jesus hanged on the cross, and folks, I acknowledge this, this transcends our ability to understand, but what we do is we bow the knee to what the Bible says. And when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why is that? It hasn't had anything to do with the Trinity, ontology, Jesus isn't all of a sudden less than God. All it has to do is relationship. You know, by the way, I think that's what, what is going to, I believe in a hot hell, but a hell is going to be the realization that you will never have that relationship with God, which he has created you to enjoy. But I go back to it. Whatever that relationship is, as Jesus was on the cross for those three hours, he was judicially, this is the word I like to use, he was judicially disfellowshipped by the Father. And, and, and there was an emptiness, and, a, and this is what terrified the heart of Jesus as he contemplated. He was made sin to, he was made to be sin for us, and therefore the Father judicially disfellowshipped you know what? This is every bit as hard on the Father as it is on the Son. But for three hours, Jesus hangs there, and finally he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the work of atonement was done on the cross as he was... Now, Jesus came to bear the result, the, the, the curse of sin, and that includes physical death, and he is going to go on and physically die. We'll come to that in a moment. But the fact is that the true terror of the cross and the atoning work of the cross was as Jesus endured that awful season of alienation from the Father. And to the degree that the relationship is infinite, to that degree, the disfellowshipping has infinite dynamics. That makes sense to you? Honest to goodness. Ah, but it doesn't stop there. Because now Jesus speaks again, and this is John 19. I'm just going to walk you through it real quickly. But I, I, I always felt like, you know, this, these seven sayings where you had a little bit of a which one is not like the other exercise here. Because, you know, you have all these profound sayings. Then you have, well, I think... What happened is this. I'm coming to Jesus saying, I thirst in John 19. But here's what's at stake. We know a great deal about crucifixion. And one of the really, well, one of the physically horrible elements or dynamics of crucifixion is that your, your, your body is sapped of every single bit of moisture, not just saliva and sweat, but you're, it begins to extract uh, moisture from the blood cells and so on. And as a result, your, your throat begins to swell. Your tongue gets all dried out and chapped and swelled, and your, 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 your voice box. And, and most people, most men, actually died of asphyxiation. They gagged to death because they couldn't draw air anymore. And it's interesting that several times Jesus had been offered that, that wine. He was offered, and, and, and okay, Rome wanted this to be lingering. And so the soldiers who were assigned to that uh, brought some cheap wine, and they were, uh, uh, several times, they would offer it to the victim. But Jesus refused it until now. 
And I think the point is simply this, that Jesus, having hanged there for those six hours, having already cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And John 19, which is parallel to Psalm 22, 21, but John 19 says explicitly, Jesus, knowing that all the scriptures demanded had been fulfilled. He wanted to say, well, there was something Jesus wanted to say, but he didn't have the physical strength to say it. And so I think as he hanged there and his throat was so parched and swollen and his tongue so swollen and he gathered his strength and probably in a voice that only those at the foot of the cross could hear, Jesus said, I thirst. And so one of those soldiers takes some of that wine on a sponge and I picture Jesus spending a minute sucking in that moisture and, and using it to bring some life back to his swollen, parched throat and voice box tongue because Jesus has something to say. And you know what? The entire moral universe is waiting to hear him say it. And he has paid a price that we will explore for eternity to earn the right to say it. But he didn't have the strength to say it. So now he gathers himself Oh, he is desperate to say it. He gathers himself and he says, it is finished. Oh, I can't get past that. If that doesn't take your breath away, nothing will. It is finished. The books are balanced. The debt is paid. It is finished. You and I rejoice in that. Can you imagine how the father and son must have rejoiced in that? Listen, what could be more? heartbreaking and offensive to both to, 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 to God than for you and I to think we can add anything to that. It is finished. And now Jesus says the final statement, Father, not my God, my God, but Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus does in fact give up the ghost. Now, We've got to be done, but we are headed for the Easter season, and praise the Lord. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, as a matter of fact, let me just balance it. In John chapter 19 and verse 7, Jesus' enemies, this is when Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and they can't get Pilate to convict Jesus as a seditionist. And so they say, well, if you, won't if you won't crucify him as a seditionist, then we have a law, and he ought to die because he claimed to be the Son of God. That's why Jesus, it's explicit in the text, by the confession of Jesus' enemies. The reason they hounded him to death was because he claimed to be the Son of God. And I'm going to tell you something. The claim to be the Son of God is a pretty bodacious claim. But he had proven it, he fulfilled the prophecies, he, 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 he proved it by miracle. So he was crucified because he claimed to be the son of God. After he was buried, he lay in that tomb until Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, you know this story, you're going to rehearse it in the Easter season. Jesus is going to come alive from that tomb. And for 40 days, he's going to show himself alive by many infallible proofs. Now hear me, how does God, all through the scriptures, prove true a man's claim to be a divine messenger? 
miracle, genuine miracle. What's the greatest miracle in all of human history? It's when Jesus came alive from the tomb. And Paul says, and I want to balance this against John 19, John 19, he ought to die because he claimed to be the son of God. In Romans 1 and verse 4, it says, Paul says that Jesus was declared. And I love the word that he uses there. It's our word, horizon. it's horizon. it's our word, horizon. And, and, and I, I like to think that what it means is that the message was spread across the horizon from east to west, from the sky to the earth, this message was declared. He was declared to be the son of God. If you, don't, if you won't crucify him as a sedition, you ought to die because he claims to be the son of God. That's why he was crucified. The resurrection, he was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And what's at stake there is this, that the resurrection is God's seal of approval, proving through everything Jesus ever claimed concerning who he was and what he had come to do. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. It takes our breath away. Uh, it is a good thing to, in a special way, stop and rehearse that drama and, and, and be reminded, allow your spirit to remind us of, of, of the, the remarkable reality that you have sent your son. Father, we thank you for, for sending him. We thank you for the life that he lived. It was a life we never could have lived. It was an innocent life. And thank you, Father, for the death that he died. It was an innocent death. He could die on behalf of others. But Father, above all, we thank you for the price he paid. It was a price we never could have paid. We have been bought with that price. Father, help us to glorify you in all things because in, in, in happy gratitude for what you have given us in your son. And we pray it in his name. Amen.